It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us uh, today. Very, very important topic today, making your next career move. Uh, and we've got one of this country's top experts uh, to help you make those right moves. Uh, first up here, as the announcer mentioned here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, um, you can call in and ask questions if you would like. You can also email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. And you know, while you're over there on the internet, we've got an all new website. So please check us out at tedhart.com uh, where you can get all of the uh, um, uh, podcasts of our shows from the past eight years here on The Nonprofit Coach. And if you're uh, looking for a creative way to listen to our show, uh, after each show, our, our uh, program is immediately created into a podcast. It's available uh, to you online at tedhart.com. Or if you've got Alexa at home, you can now just say, hey, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn, and you will be able to listen to all of our shows right there on your Amazon Echo uh, 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 um, uh, program. Programming is available on TuneIn uh, on Alexa now. So we're very, very proud of that. Uh, but first up here on the Nonprofit Coach, we always start with page one news. Ashley Gatewood is the Communications and Marketing Manager at CFRE, and uh, she is here with us for the CFRE Minute. Ashley, I got so excited about uh, our program being over on, on Alexa, I almost forgot how to tell the story. Uh, but I bet you won't have that, that problem uh, telling us all about what is new over at CFRE.org. Yes. So we actually have a lot of new stuff to report on. And just like you have a new website, Ted, we have what we're calling a refreshed website. So if you go over to CFRE.org, last week we launched a completely reskinned site because we have a new brand and a new logo. So we are coming uh, more into 2018 with our look and feel to uh, better resonate with the fundraising profession. We also have a new tagline, which is confidence, ethics, and professionalism in fundraising. And we look forward to continuing to carry that banner forward. 
And if your listeners happen to be on the road to any conferences this week, we are exhibiting all over. We will be at the Association of Healthcare Philanthropy in San Diego, the Charitable Gift Planners Conference in Las Vegas, and, of course, this is a big week in fundraising with the IFC Resource Alliance conference happening in the Netherlands, where we will also have our booth, and our CEO, Eva Aldrich, will be at that booth and happy to speak to anyone who comes by looking to learn more about becoming a CFRE, or if you are already a CFRE, come and say hi and get your CFRE ribbon to put on your name badge. Absolutely. And the IFC being one of the top fundraising uh, conferences uh, in the world, not surprising that uh, CFRE uh, will be there. A great looking new website. I'm just checking it, uh, it out now. Uh, you've got a, an application deadline coming up in a couple of months, don't you? Yes, actually, our last deadline was yesterday. And so we are now accepting applications for the June 15th, 2019 deadline. And I would encourage anybody who is looking for their employer to support their application. We know that 50% of CFREs have their employers either put some money towards the application fee or cover entirely. So if anyone out there has an application and they know that they have some professional development dollars to use up in 2018, now is a really prime time to have that conversation with your boss about if you might be able to have some support from your workplace. Terrific, terrific. And, and just to make sure everybody heard that, uh, deadline. That's January 15th, 2019 is the next application deadline. And of course, the nonprofit coach encourages all of our listeners who qualify to sit for the CFRE exam uh, to go through the certification program as an indication that you are a professional in the fundraising field. Um, any other updates for CFRE today? That's pretty much it for right now, but I would definitely encourage your listeners to stop by CFRE.org, and if they have feedback or comments on the new website, they're welcome to email me. I'm at share, S-H-A-R-E, at CFRE.org, and always happy to hear what others are thinking and how we can improve. Terrific. Always great to have the CFRE Minute here on the Nonprofit Coach as a way to make sure that all of our listeners have the latest information on how they can show themselves to be professionals in the fundraising field. Ashley, thank you for being our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. We're going to head on over to page two. Well, not uh, surprisingly, right on the heels of hearing the updates from CFRE, you might be thinking about your next career move. Uh, and the big question in your mind should be, if it's not already, what is the search committee looking for? Are they looking for someone who has a strong background in development and fundraising? Um, or are they looking for someone who already has relationships in the community? This is certainly a big question uh, for nonprofit leadership. Um, and today we have the expert um, who is going to help us sort all this out, and more importantly, help you understand how you can advance your career and be more successful. That expert today is David King. He is the president and CEO of Alexander Hawes. He has been in the field of nonprofit development for more than 30 years. He's provided counsel to hundreds of organizations in the areas of higher education, independent schools, hospitals, conservation, human services, churches, and faith-based organizations. He's a frequent uh, presenter and lecturer uh, David has authored um, uh, articles in the Chronicle Philanthropy, Nonprofit uh, Pro, uh, NP Engage, and more importantly, even today, uh, we're talking about an article that appeared in Forbes uh, and uh, Forbes uh, article that uh, we're really going to learn a lot about today is, the, is entitled The Hiring Conundrum Experience Versus Relationships. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, David King. Thanks, Ted. It's good to be with you today. It's great to have you uh, have you here. Let's um let's start off, however, just to make sure that our listeners 
uh, know a little bit more about your firm, Alexander Haas, um, your experience there, and your role as president and CEO, and then we want to jump right into your expertise and your thoughts on how our listeners uh, can advance to their next big career move. So uh, a little bit of background on you, David, and uh, Alexander Haas. Sure. Well, Alexander Haas is headquartered in Atlanta, and we are a national fundraising consulting firm. Um, our our sort of areas of specialty are um, capital and endowment campaigns, major gift programs, and leadership annual giving programs. That's where we do you know, the overwhelming majority of our work. About half of our clients are in education, either higher education or, or private secondary education. Um, we also do a lot of work with museums and cultural organizations um, and human service organizations, um, again, across the, across the country. Uh, I have been with the firm for 28 years, um, started in 1990 working at the firm, um, and have been here ever since. That doesn't happen much in the fundraising field anymore for someone to stay at one place that long. And I often joke with people um, that my career is really the story of the power of attrition, that if you stay somewhere long enough, eventually they'll hand you the keys on the way out the door. <laughs> uh, well, and, and you're, so you definitely have a lot of uh, experience with a lot of different organizations who have hi- had to hire uh, chief executives and top executives over your 30-year um, career. Um, and, and, I, and I guess, um, just as you do in your article, we, we won't keep people sitting on the edge of their seat uh, too long, this uh, conundrum of strong background and development versus um, relationships already in the community. Um, you have a very strong position on this, and you believe that it is one or the other. Which one uh, is more important here when uh, search committees are looking for a new executive? Well, I, you know, I think it's. I think it, I think we often get stuck with having to pick from one or the other. Obviously, the ideal would be someone who has a strong background in development and also does have relationships. But what we tend to find is that that the choice is between one thing or the other, um, and and I think the problem that we run into with that is is search committees making the assumptions that the relationships will translate from one organization to another because the individual moved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I have found in, in watching this tra- happen over and over again that that is most often not the case, um, that, that the relationships that the development officer has or the executive director, it really goes all the way up to, to, the, to the C-suite, um, that those relationships – um, are, are individual relationships, they often don't transfer because people's interests may not, may not translate. If I'm currently, you know, the director of development at a, at a let's say, a private school, and I move over to the hospital in, in my same community, the donors who are supporting the private school aren't necessarily going to translate over to be donors for the hospital just because I'm there. Um, they may not have an interest in healthcare philanthropy. They may not have an interest in that particular hospital. Um, their friendship with me may have been only based on the fact that I was actually the director of development at their kid's school. So I think that's where we get in, into into trouble. And, and I've heard so many executive directors and, and search committee members um, when talking about a candidate say, well, we want, you know, we want Barbara because she's got a great Rolodex. And I just, I sort of cringe at that. And, mm-hmm. and for you kids out there, a Rolodex is a is a little <laughs> contraption we used to keep on our desk that held paper cards with everybody's contact information on it. Now that's all on your phone or your desktop. But, you know, I've just seen where that, that Rolodex comes over with the person, but it doesn't translate. Either there's a lack of interest um, or there's a disconnect. Or I've seen cases where where the relationship between the, the staff person and and those donors at the other organization actually becomes damaged as a result of the person moving jobs. Um, so it really doesn't, doesn't move. Um, now, what the... 
where you get into the problem with that, you know, if you have somebody who has relationship and skills, then then you still are left with someone who has skills and they can put together a good program for you. But the challenge comes if you hire someone solely for the relationships and then the relationships don't translate. Um, so now you have a situation where the, the person you hired thinking they were going to bring new donors to you doesn't bring those donors, but they also don't you know, have a strong background in fundraising so that they know, you know, what to do now, how to start a program, how to how to develop a program and build it, um, how to create new relationships. So you can really find yourself in a situation where um where you're left very weak um because you the relationships didn't transfer like you thought they would. That's right. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth um uh mentioning um, here at, at this juncture that from an ethical point of view, um, it is not considered um, appropriate uh, for you to literally bring a donor file with you, uh, for you to literally copy a contact list uh, from your private employer and, and take it with you. And I've been on search committees where uh, candidates have come in and said that that's exactly what they're doing, that they, that they you know, uh, have the donor file and are very happy to uh, to come over, almost as if they're saying, you know, I've got money in the bag. And and to your point, that isn't necessarily transferable. Um, and uh, the point that that I think is worth mentioning is that uh, on the face of it, um, that uh, that action would not be considered ethical either. It, to me, that would that kind of thing. If I were hiring someone you know, in any area, not just, you know, not just a development director, but, but a salesperson, you know, in a for-profit business or, or someone who was going to service, you know, if I was hiring somebody from another fundraising consulting firm, anybody who, whose plan was to download the database and bring it to them, that would raise, you know, some red flags to me about that person's, person's character, you know, even, even beyond what their skill set might be. Well, and and, uh, and what I, one thing I always remind people is that when someone comes to you with that kind of offer, uh, keep in mind that they're also the same kind of person that will leave you um, taking your donor with them. Um, so they, they've just told you a lot about their character, and you should probably pay attention. Absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. And in, you know, and where we're living now in a in a world where. I saw the other day when I was doing some some research actually for a different article for Forbes that that now they're saying the current tenure for development officers in nonprofits has has dwindled down to 16 months. Um so we're really talking about a lot of churn on the on the fundraising side yeah. of well, the, I remember, the nonprofit. I remember the good old days when I remember the good old days when everybody was concerned about the uh, turnover being 3 years. Mhm. And that, and that was a big concern then. And it really, you know, it, it's it's really creates a lot of challenges um, for the sector because we are, you know, at, we talk about fundraising, but really in our firm, we really talk about the the development process and and the process of working with donors to find their shared interest with the organization that that you work for. Um, and and building that relationship um, with the organization and the donor, and that development is a process, and that asking for money or fundraising is one point in time in that whole process. But but the whole process isn't all about asking for money. But if we're churning through development officers every 16 months, it really complicates or is a barrier to that the process of, of strengthening donor relationships with the organization. Um, there's just, you know, the, just as soon as they, they begin to get to know someone and, and start to build a, a good trust, that person, you know, packs up their belongings and is out the door to the next place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I, I often describe it um, to our clients is it, it's sort of like a, an inverse game of musical chairs where we actually have more chairs than people. Um, and every time someone gets up to walk around, we add another chair, but there's still only the same number of people to fill them. Um, so each job that yeah. I see getting filled is really just plucking someone out of an existing job and setting them down, but the number of vacancies doesn't ever seem to change. Yeah, and I, and I think you know part of the concern in, in the, the industry is that, 
um, the number of true professionals is also dwindling. Um, people who put their shingles out as a fundraiser does not necessarily mean that they even know that there is uh, a code of ethics um, or that they're aware of best practices. So I, I think, you know, part of what, what um, I really appreciate about the, um, you know, the, the, the topic um, that, that you put forward um, is understanding the donor's interests and the relationship of the donor to the charity um, and, and because of this, this turnover of staffing, um, it's the systems that are in place and the process that's in place and thinking about the, uh, the eventuality of transition in almost every position um, so that the donor is not left um, wondering, who do I talk to? Um, and that even if you are in a position of hiring uh, somewhat more junior people, um, do you have a process in place? What is the role of the CEO? Um, so talk to us about the, the donor's interests um, and, and where that relationship lies, where it should lie, and the role of the professionals involved in the nonprofit to make sure that that relationship is, is not made something other than it, than it really is. Yeah. So, so I think it would, it's probably would be helpful if, if those of us in the development field thought of our work more as facilitating, facilitating philanthropy rather than driving it. So, you know, and by that I mean that, that our job is really to, to, to work with the donors of, of the organization that is employing us to strengthen that relationship and really find where the common ground is between what, what the organization is trying to accomplish and what the donor wants to accomplish. And that's when you, when you find that sweet spot is when I think you see the sort of magical kind of things happen in philanthropy. You see, you know, really significant gifts or long-term investments happen with donors. And, and I think that it, that's our job, um, is to facilitate, you know, find the common ground and facilitate the relationship. I think what happens frequently is we we get confused and we think our job is to sell donors on on what the organization needs or wants to do, um, whether there is a connectivity there or not. And, you know, and I think that's where the the process can break down. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that we are encourage all of our clients to do in the face of this of this constant churn on the professional development officer side is to as part of their system to make sure there are always two points of contacts especially with major donors um, it might be a you know might be a development officer is one point and a, a board member or a development committee member or another volunteer is the other point of contact but to always make sure we have two relationships so that when that development officer does leave and i think and you know with the tenure we're talking about being an average of 16 months we're safe to say when they leave not if they leave um, but so that when they leave um, there, that we don't start over cold with any of the, with a donor. That that there is another point of contact, and and that we have a situation where it might be an executive director introducing them to our new development director, or um, or a volunteer, or a board member introducing the new development director to the donor to try to facilitate that relationship, so that our donors aren't sitting there getting cold, essentially cold called by a new development officer every you know 18 months to two years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I think you're you're now raising um, you know uh, another important uh, question. I think we can um, ad- address uh, today. I mean, in in your article, you raised this issue of experience versus relationships, um, and and I think we both agree that you know experience um, needs to be the lead. Um, certainly, someone who has relationships, but I also think it's someone who is professional enough to know. Um, what a relationship truly is in a professional sense, because I, I've run across development officers who have, you know, maybe been in a position a bit longer than 16 months or, or maybe just 16 months. Um, and in all the donors that they've, they've built a quote unquote relationship with um, are their friends. And they, and they get confused in terms of the personal relationship that they've developed and the reason why the, the relationship was existing in the first place. And that's a relationship for, um, the organization. Can, can you help us sort of 
parse that piece of it and, and give advice to our listeners today in terms of what is appropriate and what is truly professional um, in terms of you're sitting in front of, of a search committee, um, which, which let's face it, oftentimes doesn't necessarily know how to hire um, a, a professional uh, fundraiser, but nonetheless, what is the right approach when it comes to prior relationships and how you would face relationships at your new organization? So, uh, you know, you made a really important point there, and maybe we can circle back to that, but about the search committees and, and the, you know, that whole how that complicates the whole hiring matrix. But, but to your question about relationships, um, you know, I think it's important to highlight your ability to make and, keep and maintain professional relationships um, as opposed to your ability to, to bring those existing relationships with you to a new organization. Um, you know, I, I think that, that, is, that is the, that's the key criteria that, you know, when someone starts talking about relationships, I want to know, tell me, you know, tell me how you build relationships. Tell me how you connect with someone, you know, who you're just meeting, who is, a, who is either an existing donor or a potential donor. You know, tell me about your relationship-building skills, uh, you know, I see this. I see this often. You know, I've been at a working in a consulting firm for 30 years, so I've seen a number of, of people come in due to consulting. Um, and I'm always, we sort of joke about it around here that everybody coming out of working in, in the nonprofit sector um, and into consulting, you know, believes that when they move into consulting, all of a sudden, all of their colleagues from AFP. Um, or AHP or CASE are going to come running to hire them to be their consultant, and how it never really goes that way. You know, mm -hmm. the, those relationships that they have through those other organizations and in their existing role as a development officer are really collegial and peer relationships, um, and that doesn't necessarily translate into um, me being your consultant kind of relationship. Um, you know, somebody may not want somebody they consider a peer, you know, and a, or a friend to be their consultant and come in and see, you know, and be giving them advice essentially on things they could do better or, or differently or things they're doing wrong. And I think that, mm -hmm. you know, so that same kind of, of confusion about the relationship, that can happen, in, you know, with someone who believes that their donor relationships will translate too. It just, I've seen so often that it doesn't that it it doesn't work, that those relationships don't translate. Or the other thing that I've seen, and this is not necessarily um, this is not necessarily the fault of a candidate who's overselling their relationships, but I've seen situations where um, where a candidate interviews for a job and and they're underqualified, or maybe they're even maybe they're even well qualified for the job. Um, but the but the tipping point on why they get hired is that they are part of a you know part of a family that's already a significant donor to that organization or that is known in the community to be very generous or, or very philanthropic, and so the, the the organization, the search committee, the executive director um, makes you know the tipping point on the decision is well this person is well known in the community and their family is is very philanthropic and well known and so all of that cachet will come with them to us, um, but that often doesn't happen either, because that's right the people may have, the people may have no connection or what I've seen happen is the person. I, you know, an, I don't. You know, without getting into specifics, I, I watched from from uh, the sideline a person who who very much um, did not want their family connections to be part of the decision making process. But at the end of the day, that was a big reason they were hired for a job. But they were not willing, and never had been, and never expressed to the organization that they would be willing to um, to to play on those relationships as part of their development role. They weren't going to go to their, you know, longtime family friends who, who were very affluent members of this particular community, and they weren't comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, going to them and, and asking them to support the organization they worked for. Um, now, they never said they would, and that was a supposition that the search committee and the organization made, you know, absent of the of the candidate expressing that, 
Um, and I think you know what happened at the end of the day was both parties were extremely disappointed um, when they got into the real life day to day work because the organization's expectation is you're going to bring you know the sort of the creme de la creme of this community to us. And the, and the development office perspective was, I know I, I'm not going to do that. I never said I would. Um, and, yeah. you know, that's not what this is about. No. I, I, you're making a, an extremely important point. We're going to take a quick break, and when uh, we come back, um, David, if you could help us sort of um, put our listeners in front of that search committee. These issues are coming up. The, the search committee is trying to understand the value that you bring to our organization and whether or not you're prepared for that role. How do you prepare yourself and how do you position yourself um, in front of a group of people who may not necessarily have had a good relationship with their past development officer and may not necessarily uh, know how to manage um, a, a uh, relationship officer. So uh, we mm -hmm. will be back. Life, it's busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas, and Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. And when the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with David King, President and CEO of Alexander Haas. Our topic here today is experience versus relationships and making your next big career move. Um, David, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in front of the search committee. Um, I'm trying to help answer their questions and trying to help them understand the value that I bring. Um, but they may not have had um, a stellar development officer who preceded me. They may not have felt that it was successful, and yet they're trying to do their due diligence and their, due, their uh, uh, fiduciary responsibility and identifying a good candidate to move this organization forward. We've already identified that experience is extremely important, but also the kind of experience that you bring and, and the sort of professional that you are in terms of your own personal ethics and your ability to understand the difference between what is a relationship and what is your job. Um, who is your friend and who is a professional contact. So how do I position myself and what are some of the key things that would help me be successful um, as I'm uh, talking to that first committee? So I think one of the challenges we have with, with search committees in, in nonprofits, particularly when they're put together typically out, out of some subset of the board, um, is there may not be a real clear understanding on the committee about what the or, what the organization's internal strengths and weaknesses are, and really what skill set it needs in a in a development officer or a CEO, um, and and so they may, in absence of of real concrete criteria to to look for. Um, they're going to make some up. Each individual will come up with what they think is important. Um, so what I think is important for candidates to do is two things. Um, one is to is to establish for the, the committee, um, even though it is, is probably already on your resume, but, but walk through the committee through the key successes that you've had at your past couple of employment engagements. Um, Tell them what the what the challenges were when you got there, what you did to address them, and how things were different slash better when you left, and and give them a chance to to understand, um, you know, the, those experiences and what you've been through, and and hopefully to ask you good questions about those um, that allow them to understand 
the kind of professional experience that you have and the and the kind of skill sets that you bring to the to the group. I think that another the second piece is um even though you're sitting there and 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 you're being interviewed and you you know you may desperately want this job to be very honest with yourself and with the committee about what you can and cannot accomplish for the organization um you know if, if expectations are being set out you know about we're you know we're looking for someone who's going to double our fundraising revenue next year um you know you might you might want to push back on that while you're interviewing for the job and while you think, well, I don't really, you know, I don't necessarily want to push back on that while I'm interviewing. It's that kind that may actually get you the job um, and also help to set reasonable expectations from the outset. Um, You know, when we, when we're being interviewed by organizations to hire us as a consultant, you know, we often find ourselves in a situation where where we have to start consulting before we've been hired, um, and yeah. sometimes that means pointing out to someone what you know that there may be a flaw in the logic of how they're approaching something, and and that can be a risky that can be a risky play, um, but if if you're trying to to engage in an employment relationship, and and when we're interviewing to be hired by an organization, that is a job interview for us. Um, there, we want to establish expertise, um, trustworthiness, and and forthrightness. That we're you know we're going to we know what we're talking about. Um, you can trust us to you can trust us to be upfront and honest with you even during the hiring process. Um, and we're going to be forthright with what we think is, you know, right, wrong, otherwise, and that you can expect us to be that way, you know, in the interview and after we've been hired. And I think that I think that's an important thing for people to think about when they're sitting across from that development committee is is sit there um, and in your own mind, you know, sort of behave as though you already have the job. So talk through. Yeah. You know, it, it, talk through how you would approach things. What what things you did at your last job that you think translate easily and can be used. Hopefully, by the time you get in front of a of a selection committee of some sort, you you've had, you know, another an interview and some conversations and some opportunity to ask questions so that you have a basis for for coming in and not just saying, you know, obviously here's what I've done in the past is important, but begin to lay out for the organization and here's what I think we should do to move this organization forward um, and begin to go ahead and lay out the strategy and the plan and sort of consult before you're hired. Um, and, mm-hmm. it, you know, if the expectations, if you, if you sense that the expectations are unreasonable or that they're coming from a place um, that may be coming, that, that is out of naivete, um, don't be afraid to say something like, well, in my experience, it's virtually impossible to double, you know, fundraising outcomes in one year. And here are the reasons why, um, you know, if we, you know, we have to double the number of donors or, or maybe more than double, depending on where the average gift is. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that's difficult to do. Um, and for almost every organization I, I know of, they're raising as much money as they can every year. There's no low hanging fruit left. So it's, you know, when you talk about doubling the number of donors, it's not, you know, if I could raise more this year, I would have, um, is usually the answer. So, you know, I think it's those things as, you know, really not being afraid to put yourself out there as knowledgeable and an expert um, and not being afraid to offer suggestions about how you would, you, you would approach moving the organization forward. It's sort of like the old adage, Dress for the job. Uh, don't dress for the job that you have. Dress for the job that you want. Um, so it, you know, it, don't advise from the position that you're in, but advise from the position that you want. Right, and and I think too to keep people, you know, to keep in mind that a that a job interview should be a two-way conversation. Um, that as an interviewee, you can ask questions too. I mean, you know, you're trying. You know, the idea here is that we're looking. We're both looking for a mutually beneficial fit. Um, 
And if the interview process is an interrogation rather than a conversation, you're not likely to find that mutually beneficial fit. Right. And it's also going to give you an indication of, you know, what preceded. What are some of the questions that you think are particularly well-placed for a candidate to ask that gives them insight into, you know, A, do you want this job? And, and B, could you succeed at, at this job? Yeah. You know, I ha- I happen to be um, a big proponent that that no organization can really rise above the level of its board. So, if I'm interviewing for a job in an organization, one thing that I want to know is what is what is the board's role in our in our fundraising activities. Um, mm-hmm. Do they do they assist? You know, is there an active development committee? What role does it play? Do our are our board members actively helping to identify and cultivate major donors? Um, I want to know. You know, does every single one of our board members contribute to this organization every year at a meaningful level relative to their ability? Uh, and if the answer to that is no, um, and or if the answer to the other question is well. We, you know, our board is not a fundraising board. When we recruit them, we tell them they won't have to help in fundraising. Then, then I'm probably going to move on to, to a different organization. Um, yeah, well, because you can't undo a promise like that successfully. Um, and if essentially you said, you know, those of those who know us best um, don't have to contribute, we're going to go ask people who don't know us well. Uh, to contribute and expect that to be the measure of success, um, I think any good fundraiser is going to tell you uh, that is not the recipe for success. Yeah, it, it's extremely difficult, and it, and it speaks to a board that that is not that is not well educated on the responsibilities of of being on a nonprofit board, right? Um, because fiduciary responsibility is pretty high up there on the list, and that includes you know giving and helping to get money. Um, you know, I think, you know, as we, you know, as we talk to clients, one of the red flags for us that, that it may not be engagement that that we want um, is when somebody tells us early in, in conversation that, you know, they want to have this capital campaign, let's say, and they want to raise, you know, five or six million dollars for a building or something. And they say early on, but, you know, very little money is going to come from our board and our board won't be any help at all, you know, on the capital campaign committee. Well, that okay. <laughs> um, then who is? You know, how is this going to happen? Um, it's just one of those things that that if you you know I think if you look at, at an organization, if you're contemplating whether or not to take a job, one of the things that will make your your life easier is if you're working with a board that gets it when it comes to 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 fundraising, the challenges of fundraising, and is willing to to give themselves and help. Um, and if that's not the case, um, and your job is to try to change that culture, you have to really weigh whether that's a, you know whether that's what you want to get into. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're trying to change the culture of, the, of a board like that, there are going to be some casualties along the way, um, and there's a pretty good chance you're going to be one of them. You might be one of them. That's right. What's uh, one of the questions that, that I often suggest that that uh, a, a good candidate would ask is how are the goals set for the development department, or how are the fundraising goals set for this organization? Um, because the answer to that, which could be lots of different kinds of answers, will tell you a lot about um, your ability to succeed, the role of the board, the knowledge of the board. Um, and how they view the position that you're applying for. Absolutely, and I think another uh, on, along that same path, or maybe in a you know a clause at the end of that question is, and what is my role as the development officer in in establishing that goal? Um, because I want to know that I have input, you know, into what is and isn't reasonable. We. I'm sure you've seen this, Ted, and, and I've seen it so many times I, I can't count, where the fundraising goal for the year is based on what the gap is between, you know, the incoming revenue from other sources and what the budget set at. Um, 
you know, in some cases with no analysis at all about what did we raise last year, um, what are non-recurring gifts that we know we need to, to back out of that number that we're going to have to find elsewhere, um, what does what has our you know what does our growth rate historically look like? All of these questions that uh, if we were sitting down in most for-profit businesses and setting a revenue budget for the year, these are all things that we would look at and analyze, and we would we would tend to come up with revenue projections based on some data, not just well we want to spend a million this year, but we know we're only going to get seven hundred fifty thousand from from whatever sources. So that means you got to raise two fifty. It's just it, right. it, it doesn't make any yeah, reasonable the, reasonable sense. Right. When the fundraising goal is set based on the deficit projected for the organization, uh, you know you've got a problem. Absolutely. That is a that is a huge red flag, and it and it's setting, you know, it's really it's setting the person who takes that job up for one a lot of frustration uh, because they will be. They will be fighting with whoever is pushing that on them from day one, um, and it sets them up for failure because that's just you just can't pull numbers out of thin air and expect um, that you know that it's magically going to be successful. There are a lot of factors that need to go into it, and it needs to be approached, you know, in a meaningful in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, an organization it tells me something too about. Um, about how seriously the board in particular takes the enterprise. You know, if you're willing just to make up a number to balance a budget and and aren't really thinking about what the implications are if that number is unrealistic, then you're not taking that job very seriously as a board member. And and if I'm a development officer or if I'm a consultant, I don't want to work with an organization whose board doesn't take what they do very seriously. Right. Right, right. So in your article, just to uh, – I want to make sure that we're watching the, the time here. We've got uh, – we're in our final uh, less than 15 minutes um, here. A terrific article available over on, on Forbes. And one of the points that you make, which I, I think is, is, uh, is complex but is important, is um, you say magical unicorns fly away. Um, so first of all, what is a magical unicorn? And is this a caution to – the professional looking for their next career move? Is this a caution to the search committee or both? Um, I think it's really, I think it's more to the search committee um, because what we're really, you know, one, this gets back to the, to the, to the assets walking out the door or the, or the relationships walking out the door. So, you hire somebody because they have all these great relationships at another organization, let's say. They, they've been a development officer at an organization across town. They've got relationships with, with the donor community that are really solid, and you hire them because you want those relationships to, to come to your organization. And they take the job. And let's say that this is the, this is the one in a million time when that actually works. And they're actually able to get most of their people who they had relationships with at their prior employer to come over and become donors to your organization. And the primary reason that those people are donors to the organization is is embedded in that relationship they have with your development officer. Well, then where where does that leave you when 16, 18, 24 months, when that person up and leaves to take their next job, you know, um, and they move all of those relationships with them to their next job. Uh, you no longer have them as donors. You may keep some of them, but if it's really based on that relationship, they, you may not. And during that during that time frame, when when all of the development director's attention was going into the relationships that they already had, rather than building on the relationships that you as an organization had before they got there. You know, you may wake up one day, your development director is gone, all the donors that they brought with them have left with them, and you've been neglecting your existing donor base, um, and, and many of them have moved on or soured on the relationship too, and you're in a, you're in a really bad situation. Um, so the magical unicorn is sort of the person who does come with strong relationships and is actually able to take those and capitalize on them for your organization um, but when they fly away, those relationships fly away with them. 
and and you're left um, potentially in a much worse situation than you were in before you made that hire. Exactly, and so so that really hasn't necessarily benefited the organization unless your your thought was you know we only need short term fundraising and and we'll take that, but never is a recipe for success for an organization is it to to go to donors and say you know if you support this campaign we won't ask again um, or you know make your service now and you won't we won't solicit you again um, but so many organizations do that um, why is that the case is that is that an indication of hiring the wrong professionals in the fundraising department that that they don't know that that is a dead end I well, think it more often – they're leaving in 16 months, so they don't really care. I feel like that more often gets pushed onto development officers by by board members who who are are sort of, I don't know, I guess naive a little bit to the, to the organization's long-term needs and the philanthropy in, in general um, and go in and, and, to, and maybe – um, to some degree, are embarrassed about asking for money, and so they. I've seen this on a number of occasions where we we will go into an organization who hasn't had a capital campaign, let's say in 10 years, and they need to have one because of the, you know, the buildings. I mean, they really need one. There's a problem that needs to be addressed, and they'll say, well. We can't go back to any of the donors who gave to the last capital campaign because we told them that would be if they would give to that campaign, we'd never ask them for a capital campaign gift again. You know, it's just it's not that's not how donative behavior works. For one thing, people tend to attach to organizations that they believe in and trust. And as long as the mm-hmm. they continue to believe in the cause and the trust doesn't get violated, they t- can tend to give over a lifetime. Um, not episodically or not making a, a one and done kind of gift. So I feel like that, I feel like development op professionals in the development field understand that and they realize that they're not just getting a gift for this year or a pledge for three years, that they're trying to build a lifetime donor who will, you know, who will walk with the organization through the entire, through, through the entire spectrum of annual giving, capital giving, endowment giving, and then eventually estate giving. Um, you know, not a one-and-done sort of thing to get to a goal and, and then leave the organization, you know, then, then they're going to leave the organization and move on. Certainly there are donors who, who change their interests and move on. Um, but I think telling someone we won't give us a gift now, we won't ever ask you again is completely misunderstanding, you know, the cycle of, of being a donor and working with donors. Mm-hmm. Well, and you and I have been around long enough that, that we know that, you know, very serious donors um, see through that. And, they, and they, they're, they're actually going to view your organization as not very serious and maybe even a bit of a red flag in the concern if they hear those things being said. Uh, because if they're a serious donor, they're probably giving to other organizations and perhaps have successfully been uh, solicited and, and know what a good fundraising program looks like or ought to look like. And if you take that even one step further, they may, if they are a serious donor and they're involved with multiple organizations and have been for a while, they they probably know that that's not true, that you're actually not going to never ask them for money again, and you're basically looking them straight in the eye and lying to them. Yeah, and, and, and of course that, you know, those are probably your largest donors. Um, and so immediately you, you've actually changed the, the relationship dynamic to one where they're excited about the future of your organization. They want to be an investor and be part of that to actually being concerned uh, about the, the future of the organization because they have to question leadership. And, you know, one of the things, you know, that, that I believe is true about, about the, the life cycle of donors is, and we, is, Let's talk about you know a capital campaign where somebody goes out and says, if you give the, give us money to build this building, we'll never ask you for money again. Well, the truth of the matter is that getting people to give to to a structure or something significant like that is actually the best way to assure that they will continue to give with you over a long period of time because they they bought in, they helped build the building, they helped do something significant. 
and they're not going to just walk away and watch it flounder. They want to stay involved. They want to stay engaged. So it's really counterintuitive to use that as a as a strategy to think that it's encouraging to a donor. It could really be discouraging. That's right. And and a good uh, where I was going with that is that a true fundraising professional is going to know that difference and is going to know that your top donors are 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 not going to be inspired by that kind of message. In fact, um, it's counterproductive to the overall organization. Um, listen, we uh, sadly only have about five minutes left, and there is one additional area from your article that I really wanted to get your insight into, um, and that is, you know, in this day of, you know, lawsuits and privacy and, and uh, how do you perform thorough reference checks on someone who, where a lot of organizations, you know, will simply confirm that they work there and confirm the dates that they work there, but are not likely to give a very candid uh, review. How do you actually do thorough reference checks, or is that not possible? I think it's possible. Um, I think you know what we try to do. So when when we're hiring. Um, someone to work here, what we will typically do is look at where they have worked in the past and try to find a connection that we might have into that organization, whether it's a volunteer or a previous staff member. We try not to call someone who's currently working there as that can get them in trouble, but to try to find someone who's not listed as a reference who would have known the person at that time and, and can give us um, their own personal assessment of it without it being an HR nightmare for them or for, or for the organization. Um, when we have clients that are in these kind of searches who feel a little bit hamstrung in reference checking by the legalities of it, um, because as you, you know, as you know, Ted, if you call the HR department, it's yes, they worked here, here are the dates, um, would they be eligible for rehire? And that's about all you're going to get, which, which is not incredibly yeah. helpful. But what we'll often do for clients is we'll, you know, we'll look at a person they're hiring and look at where they've been and say, well, I, I know somebody, I know a couple people who would have been involved with one or more of these organizations during that time frame. Uh, you know, I'm happy to make a call, you know, on that relationship and ask what they know about this person and and, and get some feedback that way. But I think it is. You know, if I, I think it is important, if you're going to bother to check references at all, um, then I think it's important to go beyond just calling the people listed on the resume or in the references list. Um, because anybody who's listed on that references list has already been vetted by the candidate. They've probably already been, you know, coached into, into what they should say, or they will be coached in it by the time you get them on the phone. So you're really not going to get, you're not going to get much at all. Um, in fact, I go so far as to tell organizations who are thinking about hiring our firm that if you want me to give you a list of references and that's going to be your reference check, you're wasting your time because I'm only going to give you people who are going to say fabulous things. If you want a reference check, you know, pick 10 organizations off my client list and I'll give you a contact at them. Pick them randomly, pick them because you like them, pick them for whatever reason. And and I feel the same way about hiring. If I'm only going to call the people that they listed as references, then I might as well not waste my time on the calls because one of two things is going to happen. Most likely they're all going to say fabulous things about the candidate because they're hand-picked references. The other thing that might happen is if I call somebody who's a hand-picked reference and they don't say fabulous things, now I'm really questioning um, I'm really questioning the, the person who is the candidate, um, their judgment, um, their assessment of how people feel about them, how thoroughly they vetted their own references, um, you know, that they would have somebody on there who wouldn't say something positive. So I think you have to do a little more digging. I think you do have to be mindful that you can't just start calling employees at the organization and asking them to talk off the record, but you can certainly talk with former employees and, and other people who might be knowledgeable. David King, President and CEO of Alexander Haas, thank you for being my guest here on the Nonprofit Coach. Before we go, can you make sure that my listeners know how to reach you? Sure. Um, I am dking at alexanderhaas.com, and uh, if that's too complicated, our URL for our website is www.fundraisingcouncil.com. 
um, which is what we do, and you can even misspell it, and it'll still get to us. Terrific. Well, David, again, uh, lots of very important information today about making your next career move. Very insightful. We thank you so much. And everyone, uh, please mark your calendar to join us here again next week here on The Nonprofit Coach. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.